You're listening to Ascendant Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Today, we're going to be talking about schools, teachers, and the political pressure to push teachers to the front of the line for vaccinations. We actually both have little kids. Mine's actually at home right now. He's only about two years old. Uh, But Kyle, you have a little guy as well, and he's in kindergarten, right? Yeah, that's right. But before, (laughs) before we jump into that, I just want to clarify our episode title this week because the uh, police sang a very famous song about a creepy high school girl and the teacher saying, don't stand so close to me. That's not what we're talking about here. It's because <laughs> the teachers don't want to get the Rona. So, but yes. Thanks for um, that clarification. Yeah, I thought it was important to, <laughs> to clarify. Um, but yeah, that's right. I, I do I do have a, a son who's in kindergarten. And I remember early uh, in the spring of last year, when we we first kind of went into that first shutdown, and you know, my wife and I are both working from home. I'm standing like at our countertop, like a standing desk almost, because I have to constantly go over and you know help our son with his you know schoolwork. You know, it's not like a uh, a kid who's in you know middle school who can read and read the instructions and. Literally, you have to do everything uh, with with someone who's in kindergarten. And, you know, it was kind of fun to start. I mean, we we came up with like a week's worth of science projects. I remember one of the one of the ones uh, projects we did is we, we went outside and picked some flowers because this was in the, in the spring. The azaleas are blooming and we put different azaleas in different vases of different colored water and it made the flowers change colors over the days, right? And he thought this was like the greatest thing ever. We went looking for rocks and figured out the different types of rocks and we did that for a solid week. And then the next week we came and dad, he's like, daddy, what are we doing for science today? And I'm like, oh man, I'm all out, man. <laughs> like <laughs> I've used all my tricks. I don't have anything left, I, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it was such a, um, I, I, it was so difficult. I know parents are continuing to do it now, but so difficult to, um, you know, be at home trying to work and also you know, homeschool kids. And, and also there's a special group of people in the world who become teachers. I love my son dearly, but I am no teacher and neither, neither is my wife. And the folks that go into that profession should be praised because, um, you know, educating the youth of America is such an important job Mm -hmm. and you have to be such a special person to do it. And, you know, that that's kind of some of the things we're, we're going to touch on today. Yeah. But with talking about teachers, I think we want to kind of make a distinction real quick about the people doing the actual educating of children and the struggles that they're having today right. versus teachers unions. That's right. Two completely different <laughs> things in my mind. Exactly. And, you know, that is... A lot of the tension that we're seeing right now play out across the country, and it's different state by state. Um, you know, I, I think the the two examples that we want to highlight today are, are Virginia and Georgia. What we're seeing here, experiencing within our own our own state, our home state. Um, I've got multiple family members who are educators here, including my brother, and you know. 
right now here in the state of Georgia, you know, teachers are trying to be in the classroom. And that's not exactly the case in Virginia. Um, Earlier this week, there was an incredible op-ed in the Washington Post that was written by a gentleman named Rory Cooper, who was a former advisor to then-Congressman Eric Cantor. For some of those who follow the political trends, he was the majority leader, actually, from 2011 to 2014, when Kyle and I were both still working on the Hill. And um, when he lost, it was quite the upset. He it lost was. He lost in a, his, uh, his primary. He was primaried um, by Dave Bratt, who was a, um, a Tea Partier. And um, it was an unfortunate loss for the party. He's gone on to do great things. We're not too worried about him. Um, but but Rory Cooper is a dad to three elementary-aged children in Fairfax County, Virginia. And in the op-ed, he laments the fact that the Virginia teachers' unions have pressured the state to push teachers to the front of the line for vaccine But the unions have said that they will not allow their teachers to return to full-time in-person teaching until all students have been vaccinated, and they also want to see no community spread for 14 days before they re-enter the classroom. Well, I'll just say that's probably the dumbest thing I've heard in a while. And, And, I mean, here's why. I mean, on the surface, it sounds reasonable. Right. You know, we want to protect teachers. I do, too. I don't know anyone that doesn't want to protect teachers. But here's why it's unreasonable. You know, there's currently no vaccine approved for children or adolescents, nor is there one currently in the pipeline. I mean, we will have a vaccine at some point for children, school-aged children. Yeah. That is not in the works at the moment. Yeah, because all the vaccines to this point have been approved for those who are, I think it's 18 and up. Correct. And so what the teachers are asking is for something that doesn't exist. Yeah. Well, you know, and at the same time, they're asking to be put at the front of the line for vaccines, but they're also saying we're not going to back to school until we have no community spread for two weeks. Look, that's going to be potentially fall of 2021, if not late uh, or early 2022. I mean, some of these kids could potentially, if, if, if we were to do what the teachers unions in Virginia are requesting, there are children who would be out of school for two full calendar years. It's it's hard to even fathom, right? Um, and you know they they've said that the earliest possible date they could return to work in Virginia is fall of twenty twenty one, and you know for those those folks who are are here in Georgia, that's a little bit later in Virginia. They don't start school until after Labor Day rather than the August first date that we have here in the state. Um, and but this is happening. And this argument is playing out while teachers are getting vaccinated right now ahead of potentially the elderly, the vulnerable, and essential worker populations in the state of Virginia. And, you know, I think it is important to know that ACIP, which is that um, advisory committee to the CDC that makes recommendations about who should be vaccinated and when, they have said that teachers and child care workers should be considered frontline essential workers. Yeah, they absolutely should. But if you're working from home, you're not considered, in my mind, a frontline worker because you have zero chance of being exposed to children at school. I, I mean, this is, I, I think we, the, the ACIP's 
list and prioritizing who should get the vaccine next is extremely important. And I wholeheartedly and firmly believe that teachers should be considered one of those frontline workers, but that's frontline workers now, mm-hmm. not front, not, not, not talking about the spring or the winter of 2022. Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's it's interesting because this um, issue that's happening and playing out right now in the state of Virginia was then sort of juxtaposed to um, an article that just came out in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, that was written by actually some folks that we know from the CDC that was encouraging schools to reopen and actually get kids back in the in the classroom. And they stated in the article that you know. There has been little evidence that schools have contributed meaningfully to increased community transmission. They highlight the fact that, you know, the type of spread that was frequently observed in congregate living facilities or high-density work sites has not been reported in education settings in schools. Now, they say all that and, and, and again, um, lay out the precautions that should be taken to, you know, mitigate the spread, like the things that we've talked about on this podcast several times, which is the basic public health measures, wearing a mask, doing what you can to social distance and, um, you know, have less, fewer people in the classroom setting, et cetera. And then the importance of having less community spread. Mm -hmm. And and so it's really, you know, what's happening on the community level to be able to make those decisions. Right. And I know uh, we've chatted with your brother about, you know, how he's teaching in, in kind of the classroom setting he's in where, you know, four days a week, he teaches kids in person or two days a week. He teaches kids in person. Two days a week, he teaches children, different group of children virtually. And so you're able to reduce the class size that way. So you have fewer people in a classroom. They're spread out. You you don't have 20-something kids packed into one room. You have 10 or 12. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you're able to to teach the other kids virtually on the other days. The fifth day is used to catch up with, you know, kids who are are struggling. I actually think that's a wonderful model. I think that's great that that type of innovative thinking is being put in place to um, do exactly what you're talking about here, which is reduce the class sizes and protect teachers and children right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there are definitely um, cases here in Georgia in the school system that um, should be applauded for their innovation and for the different strategies that they're looking to employ to keep kids in the classroom. Um, what's a little bit different here in the state of Georgia is that teachers are in the classroom for the most part, or they're trying to be, but they haven't been prioritized right. for vaccines like they have in Virginia when teachers aren't in the classroom. Yeah, that that is the biggest difference is you have teachers in Virginia wanting to be at the front of the line, but also not wanting to go back to teaching. In Georgia, you have the complete opposite, which is you have teachers who are in the classroom currently working and aren't able to get the vaccine at the moment. And, and you know, I'm hoping that as we get more of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine into the market, that we're able to get teachers who are currently teaching in the classroom setting these these vaccines because look we want every teacher to get vaccinated absolutely we want every we want every person to be vaccinated because that's the only way we're going to get out of this mess right uh, but I just think 
I, it, it frustrates me to have teachers unions. There's really no way to describe it other than being completely disingenuous, right? They mm-hmm. want every child to get vaccinated, knowing that there's not a current vaccine for children. And they don't want to go back to work until there's two solid weeks of no community spread. That's not going to happen until this pandemic is over. Yeah. And that's um, sadly a, a ways from, from, from now. Right. Uh, you know, I think it's also important to remember that CDC never actually recommended to close schools in the first place. It really just ended up being a knee-jerk reaction of the nation's governors as a result of what I, I thought was a lack of leadership and clear guidance at the federal level. Uh, it just was a bit of a domino effect. Kind of once one fell, they sort of all followed. Yeah, and this was, you know, we've we've chatted um, in other podcasts about how the um our our other episodes of the podcast of how we were trying to get guidance out of the cdc in spring of last year and it just really got bogged down in the bureaucratic approval process at hhs and the white house well getting information to states about how to safely keep schools open was one of the documents that the CDC was working on. I think there's this huge misconception that the CDC was out there screaming, shut everything down. That's not the case. Not the case at all. We were trying to put out information so that states could review it and say, here's the the different um, techniques and protocols and changes that we can put into place so we don't have to close schools. Mm-hmm. Things such as, Let's teach some kids two days a week in person, two day like your like your brother's doing. Yeah. Those type of innovative solutions. But instead, we got bogged down in this huge bureaucratic political nightmare of getting things approved, and then the domino effect of states just going at it on their own because they had to do something. One state pulled the plug and said, We're canceling schools. All the other states follow because they felt they had had to do the same thing. And that's where we're at today. Well, I think it's a story that we've seen repeat itself over and over again, where the states have really been unfortunately left to sort of make their own decisions because the federal government has has required it. They've just left it to the states, right. um, putting that burden on them. And that's something that we've talked about before. But, you know, I... I recall a memory when we were still at CDC back in the early fall of 2018, we uh, participated in a pandemic flu exercise. And you have to be clear, like this isn't just, you know, a few people sitting around a conference table for a couple of days. It was a try. It was an exercise that was trying to replicate what the real thing would actually like look and feel like. And so it included hundreds of people across the federal government, and it included state health departments from across the country as well. And in the scenario, we had an an infectious flu that spread quickly through adolescent populations. And in order to buy time for vaccine development and to prevent death, CDC made the recommendations for schools to close. They were basically trying to replicate, you know, um, a pandemic flu similar to what occurred in 1919. Um, And in the scenario, after CDC makes this recommendation for schools to close, the states refused. And I remember, you know, it reinforced the fact that CDC has no authority to enforce their recommendations because they're just that. 
recommendations. And despite the evidence that was provided in the scenario, states were unwilling to follow CDC's recommendations. So it was just surprising to see states so willing to actually take this step and close schools during COVID. And it was just very clear that it was all about the political pressure. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that pandemic exercise because, you know, looking back at that exercise and others that we did, it is so eerie to be sitting in that same conference room in the Emergency Operations Center and showing some of the exact same charts, right? You know, the flattening the curve chart and, you know, the potential for uh, different scenarios as far as like the curve going up and, you know, if over the weekend, the curve's going to go, you know, the, the second and third wave, you know, all of those things that we covered in this exercise, we literally saw a year and a half later with COVID. Yeah, all the same sort of pictures and graphs and different ways that you um, look at these epidemics. It's, uh, it's, it is, it's, <clears throat> you know, the one thing looking back at that exercise that we did and all of the, what I would say, like, uh, problems that we would throw out and say, one of the thing is we, in this scenario, we had, uh, fewer syringes than we needed. So we had to figure out a solution to go get syringes and, and what do we do with schools? You know, one of the things we didn't exercise for is political pressure. That's right. We didn't. And, you know, looking back, it's, it's, you know, you can't exercise for something like a White House believing that this is a hoax. Yeah. Well, you know, I, maybe I take that back just a little bit because I think I remember during the exercise, you know, one of the reasons or arguments that the states weren't willing to close schools was because of the potential backlash from parents and that political pressure. So we kind of just felt the the reverse right. um, in this case. But, you know, it, it just it, it exists and it really is a factor that has to be considered, particularly when it comes to public health, because, again, like there's no enforcement mechanism for public health recommendations. And so a lot of what um, is required and from from states, from others um, to actually enforce public health is public trust and public will. Right. And if you don't have that, then you won't have action, sadly. Yeah. Uh, we've experienced a lot of that lately. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll move on from there. But I do want to go back and talk a little bit about how um, in this article I mentioned earlier, the CDC does make clear that addressing and reducing levels of transmission in surrounding communities through policies to interrupt transmission, um, it, you know, is going to be an important step to getting and keeping schools open. I read a New York Times article uh, from a couple weeks ago where Dr. Redfield was actually talking about the difference between a bar where people are having their beers and talking louder and louder, spraying their respiratory secretions everywhere. That is a very Dr. Redfield saying, I will yeah. say. Yeah. And, and I, I do have to say this was, you know, um, right before he left the CDC. Um, and uh, so anyways, he was just trying to make the point that there's there's just an obvious difference between a bar setting where there is more of that opportunity to actually spread and for the disease to transmit versus, you know, a school or business being open. And that's, it's an important dis dis distinction to make between and as far as like the tools in the toolbox that you have to help, you know, reduce transmission. Right. Look, we all know going into 
the Boar's Head or Bourbon Street in Athens, Georgia with the sticky floors. I was about to say, what? what's the Boar's Head? What? You went to the University of Georgia. I did, but I don't remember Boar's Head. It was not one of the best bars in town, and I hope my mother's not listening because she will be upset. But it is one of those sticky college, sticky floor bars in Athens that college kids go to where the music is too loud. You have to crowd to the bar, reaching over people, as Dr. Redfield would say, you know, spreading germs by your, what did he say? secretions your Your respiratory respiratory secretions secretions. so you know it's loud and people are packed in that is not the same in any way as a classroom with desks spread apart and kids and and teachers wearing masks you know I, i think it's important that we do not lump into um the same categories just everywhere where there are potentially people Because a crowded bar in Athens is not the same as your brother teaching a classroom that's half full of kids wearing masks. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I don't, I don't want to, you know, also say that there's no risk of transmission in that school setting scenario, but emphasize the point that there's much less risk. And I just hope that clear CDC guidance supported by the new administration, both in terms of who should get vaccinated according to the ACIP and for school reopenings, is going to help provide states the support that they need to actually get kids back in the classroom. You know, I'm, I also want to emphasize that I am a full supporter of states' rights. Um, but honestly, like, why have the CDC, why have the world's premier public health experts here in this country if we don't use them. I mean, this sort of continued willy-nilly decision-making is what has led to, unfortunately, some of the tragic consequences that we've seen in this pandemic. Um, And it's only going to result in, you know, more confusion and sadly more cases and more deaths if we can't get this under control. Yeah, I agree. Look, the states are are always closer to their populations than the federal government and know better about how to take care of those populations typically. And I'm talking about like the Medicaid population and and just knowing the the demographics uh, um, and the political kind of issues within states. So they're always going to know their population better than the federal government. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is actual scientific guidance that the CDC is putting out and, and and giving the states the tools they need to actually implement that specifically with their populations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the CDC has, you know, frankly been overlooked as far as these types of recommendations putting them out over the over the past year the biden folks have have it sounds like are are looping in the cdc and are going to be more at the forefront of what's going on moving forward yeah i think i think that's exactly right and i'm i'm happy to see that and you know on the topic of letting the public health experts be more at the forefront or um as dr fauci would say letting the science speak i think we should chat a little bit more about him and uh some of the news of the past week um you know both dr fauci and dr burks uh have been pretty outspoken the past several days about the pressure that they felt personally under the trump administration and i only i only say that because 
a lot of it has been in line with the experiences that we actually had as well at the CDC and have, you know, spoken about in this podcast before. Um, and, you know, we, we know both Drs. Fauci and Burks and had an opportunity to work with them during our time in the government. And, you know, I'm appreciative, pre, I'm appreciative of them being willing to, right. to speak about their experience. Yeah, I actually saw Dr. Fauci on uh, MSNBC the other day with with Rachel Maddow, and and he was talking about how he, you know, hadn't been allowed to come on and was so excited in the past and was so excited to be there with her, and you could just see, you know, her melting away, right? I mean, he's so good at this, uh, being on TV. I mean, the guy has, I mean, he played. I, I like Dr. Fauci, I do, but he plays the media like a fiddle, right? I mean, he plays mm-hmm. everybody. I mean, not not in a bad way, right? No, I mean, no, he's an expert at answering the question the way that he wants to to to, to answer it. Mm-hmm. You know, you you can ask whatever the question is, but he's going to get to the point that he wants to get across, and he's great and he's wonderful at that and putting it in a public health way, right? But the man's been doing this. Since Ray, I mean, he's been briefing every single president since Ronald Reagan. That's right. I, I mean, he's got a lot of practice. <laughs> and I mean, least. and you can also look at some of, I mean, the the NIH has a $40 billion budget. I mean, that just doesn't happen. I mean, it It's happened, not an accident. Yeah, it's not an accident. It's because, you know, Tony's great at what he does and going to the Hill and playing the political game mm-hmm. that it takes to... Get forty billion dollars for NIH, right? <laughs> uh, and, and and you know, I, I don't say that in a bad way, but I mean, he's just really, really good uh, at, at this. I mean, he's been clear that he finally feels free to speak the truth uh, and to talk about the science. And and you know, one of the heard him the other day as well. They were wanting to go back on you know what happened last year what happened last couple months and he's like look i don't want to talk about that let's talk about moving forward what we can do to get this pandemic over with and i and i appreciated that right i mean i think that's important and the fact that he's literally the lone survivor of the previous white house task force he's the only one left that's Mm -hmm. out there burks is gone redfield's gone you know everyone's gone now except for him yeah, uh, and I think, you know, Burks actually offered to stay on and, and support the Biden administration, similar to Dr. Fauci, um, unlike the rest of the members of the task force, he is a career staff or a career employee of the NIH, right. um, and so is Dr. Burks. Everyone else was a well. I guess I shouldn't say that. That's may not. That's not entirely true. She her position was considered a political appointee position as well, similar to our uh, positions at CDC. But she had been appointed during the Obama administration and then had been a holdover from that period of time. Right. Um. So, anyways, but unfortunately, she she's gone now, both from her role at the task force, but also as the head of of PEPFAR, which is the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or basically. Uh, Basically, the U.S.'s investment in trying to end AIDS in South America, Africa, and other regions of the world that have been relatively hard hit. And, um, you know, it's a little bit different watching her make the case that, and, and about her experiences. It does look like she's trying to save face a little bit more. But, you know, I, I appreciate, too, that Fauci has defended Burke, saying that she had to live at the White House Um But the point of all this is to say that the challenges we faced all the way down in Atlanta at the CDC were much the same at the top inside the White House. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, looking back, everyone was 
under so much pressure from all different sides. And yeah, it, it, it we all were kind of in the same boat, I would say. Yeah. Um, but look, I, I will say that these discussions about getting people vaccinated, getting teachers vaccinated, who is at the front of the line, who's considered a frontline worker. All of this is extremely important, and we need to have these types of discussions and dialogue. I think people need to have an understanding that, I think I've given this as an example before in the past, but California and Mississippi are two lovely states. But they are completely different mm-hmm. in so many different ways, including their populations, including their public health infrastructure, and including how they implement recommendations from the CDC. We don't need to have a one-size-fits-all for the states. And and to, to, to have the CDC put out good, solid public health recommendations and then have people, including politicians, union leaders, parents have a thoughtful, reasonable discussion within those states is extremely important. I mean, we, we, we have this mindset as a country that we need to get away from of what's in it for me. I want it first. I want to be at the front of the line. And you know, teachers in Virginia, if you're not in the classroom, you don't deserve to get the vaccine right now. And here in Georgia, people listening, teachers are on the front line working right now. Let's figure out a way to get them vaccinated. Or at least those who are in those most high-risk categories, most vulnerable categories, or caring for someone in those categories. Absolutely. Those are the types of discussions we need to have. Instead of being just at each other's throats, we refuse to go back into the classroom until January of 2022. That is absolutely unreasonable. And it's the worst thing for kids. Right. Well... That's all the time we have for today. Uh, As a reminder, you can now find our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe, and uh, if you have a moment, a positive review. Remember to stay classy, stay healthy, America.